Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. I'm being joined by Deborah Hamilton from Hamilton Law and Mediation, and we are going to talk about a perhaps little known or lesser known than it should be aspect of the legal profession, and that is specifically about mediation. And there are so many opportunities in dogs where things go, you know, a little sideways, and they can be addressed, Deborah, don't you think, with mediation in so many instances without having to proceed to an actual court date sort of thing. Laura, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, my profession 10 years ago was litigation. I was a litigator and I realized that my clients never won when we went to litigation. They won, but they didn't win, especially when you're a breeder or an owner. You lose your veterinarian relationship, you lose your breeder relationship, you lose your owner relationship. So if you go to litigation, if you go straight to guns, which is what I call litigation, You don't have the opportunity to take a step back, take a breath, and really actively listen to what is being said, what's being felt, the emotions that are driving what's being said and felt. And so 11 years ago now, I stopped litigating. I hung up my litigation pumps, and I don't litigate. If somebody asked me to litigate, and I was really good, I say, I'm sorry. I really don't think it serves us in the animal realm, whether it's a relationship breakup, breeder-owner-handler disagreement veterinarian disagreement, landlord-tenant disagreement, you name it. I handle all of them, but I handle them before they go to litigation. Because at that point, most of the time, both parties have a minute in their hearts to listen to each other if you simply stop that boulder from running downhill. I love that, Deborah. I really do. Because the boulder running downhill has tried to run over me a couple times, so I get that. And I think it's a really apt description. So why don't you go from top to bottom? Let's talk specifically what is mediation, and then we can talk about some instances where it can be applied very successfully. So let me start, and I'm sure your audience will know that there are basically three types of disagreement Mm -hmm. approaches. You can either negotiate an agreement where the two of you can have a conversation and maybe work out a solution to the disagreement. And I have found when pets are involved, that's sometimes really hard to do by yourself because Mm. you only hear half of what the other party is saying. There's litigation where you have somebody representing you, making sure you get exactly what you asked them to get you. However, there might have been a middle ground there that you're missing because they're doing all the talking for you. That was what I did. And then there's mediation, which is a practice like I won't arbitrate. Laura, I just won't because that means I'm making the decision for the parties. And to me, that's an enigma because I don't live with that dog. I don't know what the relationship was with these people. It's like being a judge in a court. 
I don't agree with those decisions either, although some people really rely on them and there is a place for them if people cannot decide what to do. But I don't do arbitrations. I simply do mediation. So the quick and dirty about mediation is it's a voluntary process. The parties have to agree to participate. They can or cannot bring attorneys. It doesn't matter. The mediator is a neutral third party who comes in and facilitates your ability to listen. Now, most people say, well, it facilitates your ability to talk. Well, yeah, it does. It gives you the opportunity to be heard because I'm going to listen to you, Laura. And I'm also going to listen to the person you're having the disagreement with. And I'm going to hold a safe space. And you might think like I'm Sybil because I have two different personalities, because how can you listen and say, I hear what you're saying to Mary Jane and I hear what you're saying to Laura. However, when I'm saying I hear you and I rephrase what's called looping during mediation, I say back what I hear that you've said. It turns out that the other party hears it in a different way. We all come to disagreements with our own perspectives and perceptions. We run with them. We run with them 90 miles an hour because we are completely right. I wrote a book, oh God, six years ago now, Nipped in the Bud, Not in the Butt, How to Use Mediation to Resolve Conflicts Over Animals. It is on Amazon. It's a fun book. Everybody who reads it gives it a five. And it was a bestseller, still is in its category. But I have three things that people can do. And this is how I describe mediation. It makes you stop talking and listen because you're there with someone who's going to hold a safe space. So you're not attacked. Yet you're able to listen to the other party and they're able to listen to you. The mediator helps you drop the need to be right because you are. Nobody can make you wrong. Only if you absolutely hold the feeling that Laura is making you wrong. No, that's Laura's opinion of this situation. You aren't wrong. But if you listen, I always say, and a friend of mine who's like an English major, I go, you're writer if you listen first. And they go, really, there's no word like that. And I said, yes, but you are because you hear everything that Laura says. And you go, you know, Laura, I agree with you here and I agree with you here and I agree with you here. So you're now shifting the trajectory from disagreement to agreement. And you can find a path toward a resolution. And the last part is stop, drop, and roll. So you remember that from when we were young and people said we were on fire. Well, when you're in conflict, it is as if your whole body was on fire. Let it roll off your back because you know what? It might just be that Deborah had a really bad day. And when she turned around and snapped at you, she just really didn't know she was doing it or did it without thinking and maybe doesn't have the skill set to apologize later on. And I love when Brene Brown has created this sentence. It's a perfect mediation sentence. The story I'm telling myself is, Laura, that you nailed me for not putting all the products away at the dog show, right, or sweeping the floor. And you really were disrespecting me. And I just want, and you would turn around and say, you know, you're right. I was disrespectful. Or you would say, you know, that wasn't what I meant at all. I was so mad about what happened in the ring or what somebody said to me. And you were just the first person I came to, to let it go. And I felt safe with you. And I want to apologize. You give that person the opportunity to see if your perspective of what they said is what they meant. It also gives that other party an oh shit moment where they say, that's not what I really wanted her to feel when I said that. I'd like to have a deeper conversation and really appreciate whatever. So mediation to me is that process that gives you the opportunity to have the conversation, you can't have a negotiation, but it doesn't take your ability to litigate away. That's the other reason I hate arbitration, because you're giving somebody else the opportunity to make the decision for you. In mediation, 
if you have a really good mediator who is able to hold a safe space for everyone, and I can say I know about five mediators who I would trust with animal issues, because I can honestly tell you that most mediators want to run with their hair on fire with people arguing over pets because it's all emotion. The contracts that we discuss and we argue about are on paper. And I often say to people, did you read the contract before you signed it? And they go, yeah. I said, did you understand what it meant? Well, yeah. I said, and did anybody say anything different? Well, she said this or she said that. I said, did you write that down in the contract and initial it and change it to say that? No. I said, well, then we have a little bit of a problem. So let's talk about what you understood it to be. Do you have any contemporaneous writings of that? So you calm them down, especially in breeder owner contracts. Holy Toledo. People will agree to standing on their head in Main Street every third Wednesday of the month in order to get a dog. Yes. And then they don't understand why they're held to standing on their head on Main Street every third Wednesday. They said, but you signed this. And they go, yeah, but I didn't think she'd keep me to it. And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> so that's I why we wrote it. <laughs> yeah. I talked them off the ledge and I go, you know, I get it that you don't want to stand on your head. And let's talk with Laura and see if we can work out a better way. Maybe you can just sit on the bus stop on Main Street every third Wednesday instead of stand on your head. Let's see how we can shift it. I mean, I've had such incredible cases that I read the contracts or I look at the relationship breakups or I look at the veterinary malpractice and I go, oh, my God, I wish I'd gotten there before they really burned every bridge. And you and I both know that people simmer for a long, long time before they explode when they disagree. If I could get them at the first instance to ask that one question, you know, Laura, the story I'm telling myself when you say that to me is. It would stop my work. I would be out of work. You wouldn't have a job. (laughs) Yep. It would make me so happy. But that's not, you know, what happens, unfortunately. Well, Deborah, you just brought up a really interesting conversation that, you know, when we talk about legal stuff, we don't often think about this. We think about the breeder buyer, you know, that sort of thing. You were mentioning to me earlier that you're doing a lot of work with veterinary clinics. And we all know everything right now is difficult for veterinarians, for veterinarian staff, for owners who would like to get their dog seen, everybody is under pressure. So talk a little bit about that and ways that my listeners can borrow a little bit of skill set from you in their interaction with their veterinarians. I'm so glad you asked that because between trying to enforce paragraphs of a contract as a breeder, I always say you need to have that conversation early. Don't walk up to someone two years later and say, you know, you owe me a litter. You should be having that discussion all the way along. Same thing with veterinarians and their practices now. Transparency is key. So your client is not going to be so frustrated. I'll give you a complete example. My dog just went off with a handler and I had to take it to the vet. And I've been with my vet 25 years Mm -hmm. and I love my vet. And I sat outside and all these people were going in ahead of me, I presumed, because I'm sitting there and no one's coming to get my dog. And I am champing at the bit. And because of what I do, I sat there and I breathed. And I said, okay, this is just my perception. Maybe these dogs are post-surgical and coming in for post-surgical. Maybe they're coming in for their nails to be cut, their anal glands to be done. You know, maybe there's a priority here. Maybe I should ask questions, which Mm -hmm. we don't. We just presume that you have not kept me in the queue the right way. And when I get you, I'm going to blast you. And I really found myself wanting to blast 
the poor vet tech who came out like 30 minutes after my appointment was to get Junie. And I sat there and thank God I know the breathing techniques, the out of the box thinking techniques that I teach people, because it may be that you're 100% right. They suck at time management and they don't keep you on scale. Well, then what I always say to the people who come to me, so this is one event that has driven you nuts and I get it and you want to like really wring their necks. Let's write them an email and say, listen, I was just there and I'd love to share with you three things. One was I would have loved a little more heads up that it would have taken 30 minutes for me to get in. And I understand these are different times, but it really would have helped me with my anxiety and my dog's anxiety sitting in the parking lot to know that. So just send me a text. And secondly, let me know even before I come. So I know that vets times are crunchy now. I mean, first of all, their practice has expanded by at least a third in most mm-hmm. instances, maybe even half. And they've lost staff at the same time. Exactly. While they're expanding their practice, they're losing staff and or training new staff. Right. So you're in this quagmire of not having enough staff to address things, not having enough trained staff and experienced staff and staff that has relationship with clients. You have new exactly. clients who nobody has relationship with and new clients who've never had a dog before. So that's even scarier. So I understand that it can be really trying and you really want to let them have it because this was ridiculous that I sat in the parking lot for an hour and a half for a five-minute health check. You know, he was healthy. I just needed that little piece of paper. But what you need to know is that it's going to be a little longer. And I have a colleague, Deb Boone, who's one of the premier front desk managers for vet practices. And she actually put on her website a transparency form that every vet could steal and use. These are the six things you should tell your client before they come. You may take longer. Yeah. So everybody could have stolen it. I think maybe five people took it. Now there are more than five vets in the United States. So I think that's a little low, but you really need to be proactive. And that's what I'd love for all of your listeners to understand. If your veterinarian isn't proactive, be proactive. When you make an appointment, say, what can I expect? And can you give me a little bit of a heads up on how long it's going to take. And would you like me to let you know about my experience once I leave and not on Yelp? Oh my God, if you want to end a relationship immediately, please put all of your anger into an email in Yelp. If you want to write to Yelp, write to me instead, and I will help you get off the ledge. You know, Laura will provide my email, write to me. Deborah, I just love that. And I think it is so important. And I mean, yes. There are situations where veterinarians make mistakes. We know that. They're human. Everybody makes mistakes. Okay. But let's just, like you say, back away from the ledge for a minute and think. I always like to talk about standing in someone else's shoes. Be that vet tech who hasn't had a chance to pee since 7 a.m. and is still busting her butt. And it's 100 degrees and she's run out to that parking lot. 50 times already and it's 10 a.m. And no one's really happy out in the park. Nobody's, nobody's happy. You know, so everybody's doing the best they can. And I'll share with you, Laura, that you're right. Vets are not perfect. Vets make mistakes. Absolutely. And there's a number of websites with the trash vets. And I'm often discussing it with them and saying, listen, sometimes it's not the vet's choice that they can't speak to you. Their malpractice provider tells them not to. And this is my mission in life. My mission in life is to have the paradigm shift for veterinary malpractice because most veterinarians, if they're supported in a mediated environment where they're safe, 
where they can have a conversation that's confidential. So you can't use anything that's said in mediation in a future trial. That's a really important thing to know. If you talk to a lot of litigation attorneys, they go, Deborah, the genie is out of the bottle. And of course, my answer to that is, well, if your vet did something terrible, wouldn't they like to solve it in a confidential environment than have their license reviewed? And what I always work for in my mediations is I always work to have the pet owner work with the veterinarian on that age old desire. Please don't let this happen to another dog. And if I include the pet owner whose pet was affected by the mistakes that were made, either that were life threatening or just were injurious, most of the time, and I can say this with authority because it's happened in my cases the pet owner will go on and say, listen, Dr. Smith made a mistake with my dog. But not only did he listen to me about the mistake with my dog, he included me in the solution. I gave him a lot of ideas. He took one of my ideas or he didn't take one of my ideas, but it was an idea I thought would really work as well. Because what you want to do is be partners. And that's what mediation allows you to do. You are not adversaries. You are partners in finding a solution to petter, serve, pet owners, veterinarians, and the pet, which is what I always say, that's who I represent, the pet in the room. Right. And I think that that, Deborah, also applies transitioning back to our breeder-buyer relationships. You know, the same thing applies. What is the best thing for this dog? What is the best solution? And putting the prioritization on the well-being of the animal not the egos or the heartstrings or the whatevers. Well, it often bothers me, and I have to be totally honest and transparent, when breeders say, return me the dog and I'll refund your money. Well, Mm -hmm. that is never going to happen. Most people are not going to return the dog. You can offer them another one, but maybe that's not the best if you've had a rocky relationship. So my thought is always offer to return the money, not the dog, or at least half the money and not the dog. Because people love their dogs. They might have three legs now, or they might have chronic skin issues or whatever they have. As breeders, this mediation training, if you would come to one of my conscious conversation programs where you learn how to speak to someone where you listen more, and breeders are notorious for just reading their contract and saying, you know, paragraph seven says this, and if you don't do paragraph seven, I'm taking the dog back. That's a real relationship builder, Laura. That is a real relationship builder. and. I mean, I sit there and I say to the breeder, okay, so this person has a dog that you want to use in your breeding program. You do have seven paragraphs that say, you've got to do this and this and this. Have you spoken to them during the two or three years that they had the dog to build them up to know they have to give you the dog to be shown? They have to pay all the, I mean, when I see some of these contracts, it might not be all the good dog people, but the breed people, you know, I get three letters back. You have to pay every test known to man in this breed. You have to pay a handler to show your dog. And I always say to people, you know, the buyers, did you ask them how much that would cost? And they said, no, we just wanted the dog. And they said, well, that's about a $10,000 number right there. If you have to hire a professional handler to handle your dog to a championship before it's two, I have to tell you, I have had five people call me who bought dogs who were required to go to obedience. Within the first six months, they were in someone's home and they bought the dog during COVID. And they called me and they said, if she enforces this, it says here that she can take the dog back. And I said, yes, she can. I said, because you signed it. You didn't ask that question during COVID. Listen, there's nobody training dogs. I mean, they are online. And if you really are industrious, you can do that. However, 
the breeder really has to be the partner and the mentor of the puppy owner. I mean, you and I have had this conversation. Yes. I actually just did another conversation here on the Good Dog Pod talking about contract overreach. And I think that as responsible breeders, we need to keep in mind that buyers will often go to a disreputable source because we have, and I had another conversation on this, we have protected our breeds to death and we are in the process of doing that. And, you know, we should protect our breeds, but we should bring people in with an open heart. I've had a friend who wanted to buy a Vishla and the Vishla people said, you haven't owned one before, so we won't let you have one. I mean, really? Are you kidding me? I mean, I get it. Irish setters too. You really don't want to give them and your dogs as well. You really don't want to give them to a novice because they're going to run with their hair on fire. But that's why. Okay, so this is a repeat buyer. This is a repeat buyer. This is a new buyer. I have to be in their bed every day for the first six months so that this is successful. And if it isn't successful, understanding it isn't successful, getting the dog back and giving them their money back. Because you know what? A, you don't want your dog in a situation where the person feels really overwhelmed. And B, you do want to bring people along to really love your breed because that's the sustaining of purebred dogs. You know, otherwise we're going to just have a lot of dogs from shelters and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But really, if you want an Irish setter or a pointer, you're just going to want to find somebody who's a reputable breeder and being a reputable breeder really means that, okay, so I have six paragraphs in my contract that you signed. And one of them says three litters back. And these people are really just incapable of doing it. And this dog is, you know, the bitches are harder than the dogs because the dogs you can just collect and then let them go. The bitches are harder, but recognize, is it better to keep the dogs in a phenomenal home with two people in their middle age and retirement than to get three litters back from them? You know, get one litter back and maybe get two litters back, but you have to be diligent in building that relationship. You can't just tell them, paragraph four, it's time. I just want to choke the life because first of all, being an attorney, that plays into the animal law people's hands and the animal rights people's hands immediately because you are an unreasonable puppy mill. And you aren't. You're trying to sustain your breed, especially your breed, which have low numbers, my breed, which has low numbers. You know, I want to hold on to these bitches. I can't keep them all, but I'd like to have a litter or two with them. But I'm going to make sure they live in a phenomenal home. And if I get a litter out of them, great, move forward. If I get two, fabulous, great. And if I don't ever get a litter? What is more important? Right. I mean, that is the bottom line. And to me, and I've been there, done that more times than I can even begin to count. It happens. What is the most important part? Exactly. The dog. dog. So take it back. You have to give them money. Or let it live out its days. Exactly. And if they want to get rid of it, if they want to get rid of it and they go, yeah, but I already spent X amount of money on this. I always put in my contracts, you get a full refund for your dog for the life of the dog. Because I want you to call me, not give it to the neighbor, and then I'll never find it. That really puts me over the edge. And that's the breeder's fault. If your person gives the dog that they signed a contract that they couldn't place it without a written right of refusal from you, and they place it, well, that's your fault. Because you haven't kept in good touch with them and established and continued to support a relationship. And that's, I think, why mediation is so important to me coming full circle. Because it creates that opportunity to have conversations that are difficult. And sometimes you and I both know there are some owners who suck the oxygen out of the room and we love them and they're a great home for our dogs. Don't get us wrong, but they will drive you over the edge and down the other side. I get it. 
In fact, I have two or three friends who say, I can't believe you still sell dogs to these people. And I said, you know what? They're the greatest homes. They do obedience. They do agility. Do they take a lot of calories? Yes, they do. But I can't find a better home for a dog, usually, you know, single or just two adults. And they dedicate their lives to these dogs. And so, yeah, they have a lot of questions. And it's the same question over and over. That's okay. Uh, Yeah. And that's why mediation works so well, because you can address that. So, Laura, you know, you've asked that question twice now. Are you finding that the answer that Deborah is providing is helping you? No, it's not, because I still want to know. So you get to the crux and then they recognize what is the trigger for Deborah. Please don't ask me again that question. And what you can do to say, you know, I know this question triggers you, but I am so worried about Fluffy's ears. And so I'm just really worried. You know, it gives you that opportunity to have that conversation that you can't have one-on-one because I come to you at a really bad time in the middle of a dog show to have a deep conversation. Yeah, that's not happening. I call you on a day when you're whelping puppies. Not happening. I call you on a day right before you're leaving for a two-week dog show. Not happening. I don't know that. I just think you're ignoring me. And when I hang up the phone, what I think is she's ignoring me. She doesn't care about me. And I'm just not going to cooperate with her at all. And then if that's the case, you as the breeder, that's why you want to bring a mediator in because you as a breeder want to choke the life out of them. Don't they know I have a life other than speaking to them, but I can't get rid of that feeling, that perspective. They can't get rid of their feeling and their perspective. So if you bring a third party in with mediation, which is infinitely less expensive, usually takes about four to six hours because I only do two hours at a time, Laura, because it gets Uh, so emotional. That's a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, I've been involved in some of these. It's a lot. And they beat the snot out of you for eight hours, then you agree to shit just because you don't want to do it again. You don't want to come back. So I always say, listen, I only do this for two hours because it's emotional for me. It's emotional for you guys. And I want the agreement you come to to stick. I don't want you to agree to something simply to get off the Zoom. And that's what I always do. Mediations for me have been on Zoom since 2010, 11, when Zoom started. Wow. Uh, As you know, we breeders sell dogs all over the country. And so to get somebody from Oregon to talk to someone in Virginia who they bought the dog from is impossible because it's just logistically and expensively impossible. So I've been using Zoom to do this. And I always thought when I did this, somebody would hang up. When you said something that pissed me off, I would just hang up. And I was mesmerized. They never hung up because they didn't want the mediator to think they weren't trying to work it out. Right. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, Deborah, this is such good information. And I'm really excited to offer this up for our listeners to have some great ideas. And we may very well be able to have some more conversations, some conscious conversations along the way. Oh, absolutely. And let your listeners know that what they want to do in their contract, if they can, some of them have arbitration clauses in their contracts. They don't want that because then they are taken out of the decision making Mm. if something goes awry. And you can't go to court because you have an arbitration. Can you replace that with a mediation clause? You can. And it, of course, doesn't take it out of court because if you replace that with a mediation, now all the litigators will tell you you never want to do that because, you know, you can't go straight to court. You have to mediate. Well, that's really what you want because it's a little less expensive and you might be able to work it out. And if you don't work it out, you still have all your rights and abilities to sue someone in court. So I always say anybody who wants some language, just give me a ring because it really is important to facilitate that discussion to maintain a relationship between the people with the dogs, the people who are pet service providers or breeders, 
and also to maintain that the animal is kept in the best place it can be maintained. And that's what we all want, especially good dog. They want all the dogs. So all the dogs are good. It's yes. the owner and the breeders and the veterinarians. The dogs are never the problem. <laughs> awesome. Ever. All right. Thank you so much, Deborah. You're very welcome. I love being here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its good breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at gooddog.com dot com slash join. That is G O O D D O G dot com slash join. Or click the link in the show notes.